Let's bow together in prayer. Father, what a joy it is to be able to come into your presence because of the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who died for us. And we come this day to worship you, to lift up our hearts and praise, and to give you thanks for all that you have done for us. You fill our hearts with joy, and we pray that today you might draw us close to you in obedience to your word, that you would cleanse our hearts, and that you would teach us as we listen to what you have to say to us through your holy word. Empower us by your spirit. Fill our hearts that we might walk with you all the days of our life and grow in our relationship with you. Father, we pray that today you'd be with those who are hurting in our congregation. You know the needs that are on our heart, and as we come into your presence, there are people that come to mind that we want to pray for today. In our congregation, we think in particular of Bruce and Patty Marzoff who are going through really a severe trial at the end of life and the suffering that they are going through. And Father, we pray that you would comfort them and come alongside of them by your presence. And Lord, there are others too in our church who have physical needs or financial needs, emotional and spiritual needs. And God, we thank you that you know all of that. And we pray that you would minister to each one who is here today. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your great love. And as we bring to you our gifts and the offering that we take this morning, would you bless them and would you bless each one who gives? In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you. Thank you. Well, I have a couple of minutes to share. Uh, my name is Sam Rotman. I was at your church, I don't know how many years ago, but it was great to uh, be invited back. I'm going to give a concert at 6.30. It's going to be about an hour and 20 minutes. So you know how long we're here? 6.30 to about uh, 10 of 8. And uh, I play classical music. You have tremendous musicians here, but I play the music of dead men. <laughs> They're all gone. But uh, classical music... Uh, I went to a school called the Juilliard School of Music. I have a bachelor's and a master's. I was there for five years, practiced 10 hours a day. I mean, literally every day I sat at the piano for 10 hours. I've played in 58 different countries. I've given over 2,500 concerts. But music is not the most important thing in my life. And tonight, I'm going to share my whole testimony, but this is the one-minute testimony. I was raised as an Orthodox Jew. My father was born in Europe. My mother was born in Europe. And my father lost his family in the Holocaust. Fourteen members of his family were killed by the Nazis. But they escaped, and I went to Hebrew school, just like people go to Christian school. I went to school in the synagogue five days a week for eight years. I was very moral, very religious, but very immoral on the inside. I knew who I was, and I knew I was not on the inside the way I could appear on the outside. So at Juilliard, I met three students who called themselves born-again Christians. They began to talk to me. They asked me if I ever read the New Testament, which I never had. If I thought if Jesus could be the Messiah, which I didn't think he was the salvation for Jewish people. But I made a bold step to read the New Testament. And this was a shock to me. Here was a man, Jesus, who said of himself, I am the light of the world. Wow, are you kidding me? Here was a man, Jesus, who said, no person comes to God the Father except through me. And on May 21st, 1971, for the first time, I prayed to Jesus Christ. And I literally said, hello, my name is Sam Rotman, and I want you to take over my life. I want you to tell me what to do with my life, and I'm not going to tell you what to do. I finished praying, I opened my eyes, and I was a completely, completely changed person. I knew that God had come in my life and completely changed me on the inside. I've played 2,500 concerts, and all of my concerts are nothing, nothing compared to having Jesus Christ. And I play the piano for Jesus Christ. He gave me the ears to hear the music, the fingers to play the music, the mind to learn the music. You know that Jesus has never missed one of my concerts. You know that? <laughs> so I know it sounds cute, but I hope you don't miss it. Because around 6.20, Jesus comes in, and he sits in the front row. I'm... It's not funny to me, but... <laughs> He comes in always 10 minutes, he sits in the front row, I sit down to play, and the first thing he says to me when I sit down to play, he says, Sam, I'm really looking forward to hearing you play for me tonight. So I hope you can come. Let me just tell you, I'm going to introduce the pieces. We're going to move the piano right here. I remember it was here last time, so you'll be able to see the hands. I take a moment to introduce the piece, you're going to know exactly what I'm playing. You can enjoy the music. You're going to hear French music, classical music, Beethoven, Russian music. You're going to have a whole meal. Now, let me just say this one last thing, and then I don't want to take more time from your pastor. People ask me all the time for almost 40 years, how do I get my kids? They play piano, they play clarinet, or my grandkids, they sing. How can I get them to practice more? I'm going to tell you the answer. I'm serious. Take them to a concert. Even if you can't come tonight, listen, take them to a concert, because when they see the pianist play, or the conductor, or the violin, they're going to go home, they're going to say, Mommy, I want to play my piece like that. One concert is equal to six months of nagging. <laughs> so two concerts saves a whole, but I'm saying, 
take him to a concert. I've made professional recordings. Um, one was almost nominated for a Grammy in 2004, all Beethoven, all French. I have some recordings there in the narthex. Also, my testimony has been made into a documentary by Jews for Jesus. So I'll be there after the service. And if you want to look at them or purchase them and autograph them or whatever you'd like, I'll have them tonight for the concert. But it's a privilege to be here, and I hope uh, you're able to come. And I think you'll hear my, you've heard the one-minute testimony. Tonight you'll hear the 17-minute testimony, all the details, everything put in. And it's great to be here, and thanks for the privilege to come and share with you in the worship we do. The Lord be praised. Amen. Amen. All right, very good. Well, Sam, you play the music of dead musicians, and I like to read dead theologians, so maybe we have something we could talk about there. That's why it's all about the living Christ. <laughs> that's right, amen. It is the living Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue in this series? We're going to be talking about joy in the midst of trials. Joy in the midst of trials. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we pause to ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to us through your word today. We worship a living God. We come to know you through the risen Christ. And it is the work of your Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to see and understand the truth. And would you take that truth and apply it to each of us in a powerful way today? We ask it in your name. Amen. Let me read this passage for us as we begin. Peter writes, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. The English poet William Blake lived in the 1800s, and he is buried in London's famous Bunhill Cemetery. And there where he is buried, he is close by the graves of others like John Bunyan, Susanna Wesley, John Owen and Daniel Defoe. And on the day when William Blake died, a friend wrote that he died in a most glorious manner. He said he was going to that country he had all his life wished to see. And he expressed himself happy, hoping for salvation through Jesus Christ. And just before he died, his countenance became fair, his eyes brightened, and he burst out in singing the things that he saw in heaven. What a glorious way to die. Isn't that the way that all of us would like to step from this life into eternity? I I love that phrase, that he said he was going to that country that he had all his life wished to see. For all of us who know Jesus Christ, that's our hope, and that's what we long for. William Blake had that living hope that we talked about last Sunday in the first part of this passage. But William Blake also knew that in this present life in which we live, that there are trials that we experience, that life is a mixture of joy and sorrow, of good things that happened and hard things that happen in all of our lives. 
In fact, it was Blake who wrote in one of his poems that joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. And under every grief and pine runs a joy with silk and twine. It is right it should be so. Man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. He understood that life is this combination of joy and woe. Sometimes they happen even on the same day. Someone we love dies, and maybe a child is born on that same day. Or there is a way in which God works to provide or answer prayer that is marvelous, and yet there is a difficult trial that we are going through. And what we find in our experience is that generally it's easy to have joy when things are going well, but it's not so easy to have joy when things are going badly. Most people can handle the first, the good times. It's the people who have joy and adversity that are really unique, and that's what this passage is about. There are three things I want to point out to us out of what Peter writes here. He tells us, first of all, that joy is possible in the midst of trials. It is possible to have that deep and abiding joy in the midst of difficult circumstances in our life. And the basis for that joy is what we have in Christ. It is our living hope, the hope of eternal life and of being with Christ forever in eternity. It is our lasting inheritance, all that God has prepared for us there. And it is a divine protection. Remember that when God said that we are protected by his power until that day comes when he will take us safely home. God is watching over us. These promises are certain. They are lasting possessions for every believer who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And that is why Peter says in this, it's in these things that we greatly rejoice. This is our confidence and our hope. And then in contrast, Peter talks about the trials of this life. And he uses different words to describe them. He tells us that the trials of this life come in all types of shapes and sizes. That in these things we greatly rejoice, though now for a little while we may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The word that Peter uses for trials here is broader than just persecution. He could have used a much narrower word in Greek, but he chose this broad word. And this broad word that is used includes persecution because we are Christians. And Jesus talked about that as well. And there are believers still today who suffer and die because they are Christians. It includes physical ailments in Galatians 4. Paul talked about the bodily ailments that he experienced that were a trial for him and how the Galatians cared for him in his suffering. It can refer to temptations, attacks by Satan, spiritual warfare like what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was about to go to the cross. We experience temptations and attacks by Satan in this life. And it can also be the stress that we feel from living in a fallen world. Now, I'm not talking about the normal stresses of life that everyone experiences, but in 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter talked about how Lot 
as a righteous man felt in his heart, grieved, and he felt sorrow by seeing the wickedness of the world around him. And there are times when we as believers in Jesus Christ look at the suffering in our world, look at the sin, the fallenness, the cruelty, and our heart is grieved and we long for that day when God makes all things new and Jesus will reign as Lord forever. Peter goes on to tell us that the trials of this life are temporary, though now for a little while you have experienced these things. They are temporary. Paul calls them light and momentary troubles. And I know that doesn't feel like that when we're going through trials in our life. You know, when you're in the midst of pain and suffering or sorrow, it feels like it's just going on and on and on. And when will it end? But from the perspective of eternity, the writers of Scripture tell us that these things are but light and momentary troubles. And one day we will see that and understand more fully what that really means. And he also tells us that the trials of this life are necessary, that you may have had to suffer grief in various kinds of trials. That's why Peter goes on to tell us that God has a purpose for our trials. God has a purpose for our trials. He tells us in verse 7 that these have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. God has a purpose for our trials. God uses trials to prove the genuineness of our faith. When Jesus told the story, the parable of the sower, he talked about different responses to the gospel, to the word of God, and how there were some who, because they had no root in them, when suffering came or troubles came or persecution, they just fell away because they had not come to believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord or to trust him. He talked about others who drifted away when they encountered the temptations of this life or the desire for other things or the worries of the world and they were so caught up in what this world has to offer or the things that they were experiencing that they drifted away from Christ. They walked away. It was those who were the good soil, who heard the word of God and understood it, that remained faithful all their life and who bore fruit for God. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times as much as what was sown because of their trust in God and their faithfulness in their life. You know, this past month, I've been having my quiet time in the book of Kings. And, you know, it started as you go through the scripture, reading in Samuel and then in Kings. And reading about the life of David, one of the things that struck me was over and over again how much it was said of David that he was a man after God's own heart. Or that David was fully devoted to the Lord and his life became sort of the benchmark, the standard for the other kings who followed. And they would say things about those other kings that they were not devoted as David was or they were not as committed as he was. And what struck me in going through that in my quiet time was just how David was called a man after God's own heart, not because he never sinned, but because his heart never wavered in its commitment to God. 
He was not like the other kings who worshipped the Baals or the Asherahs or these other false gods and idols. David worshipped God alone. And when he sinned, and he did sin in his life, and when he was confronted by it, he confessed it and repented and turned back to God. David's heart was fully devoted to the Lord. And, you know, that encouraged me because if being fully devoted to the Lord means that we will never sin in our life, well, then I, I just fail on the first day because I need to grow and I struggle with areas in my life and I want to honor God in everything, but I sin. But my heart can be like David's where I don't want to waver from my commitment to him. And when we sin, we acknowledge it and we come back and we say, God, would you forgive me? And would you empower me to live and walk with you each and every day? May we have that same kind of attitude. And God uses trials in our life to purify us and to refine us. He uses those trials to test us. He did that with David. He does that with us. He wants us to demonstrate our love and our faithfulness as we go through circumstances in our life. And he tells us that our faith is more precious to God than gold. He takes the most precious thing to man. I mean, you know, a man loves gold or loves money or resources or wealth and so kind of prizes these things. And he tells us that our faith is more valuable to gold than what is greatest among men. But it's never fun to go through the fire, is it? It's never fun to go through trials like Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Those trials are difficult. There's an interesting picture that comes out of biblical times that can maybe help us to explain this. When the Romans threshed grain, there were a couple different ways that they did it. They had something called a threshing sledge, and they also had a threshing cart that they used. The a threshing sledge, and you find this in Scripture in Isaiah 41 too, for example, was a uh, kind of a sled made of heavy beams that were put together, and they would be dragged over the grain. When the grain was harvested, it's bundled into sheaves. Those sheaves are taken. They're laid on a threshing floor. And then they would pull this heavy sled over them. And this sled was kind of, they had put in sharp pieces of iron and stone and everything in it so that it would cut the straw and leave the grain on the ground. And the cart was used in the same way. This cart was actually made of rolling cylinders that had sharp stones and rough bits of iron in it. And it would be pulled by a mule and a guy would sit upon it and they'd ride over the grain and this would uh, thresh it so that the kernels of grain would come out and be found. But that Roman cart was called a tribulum. A tribulum. We get our English word tribulation from that root word. And sometimes trials feel like that. Sometimes it just feels like we're getting beat up or knocked around or all these things are happening in our life, whether those trials come through unemployment or health needs or disability, but even more so when believers are suffering for their faith and being persecuted unjustly. What do we learn when we go through trials? Well, we learn things like trust. We learn to place our trust in God because we come to that point where we have nowhere else to turn and we find that God is enough.
We learn patience. We learn to wait on him in his timing. We learn compassion for others when they go through circumstances that are similar to what we have gone through. We learn that God gives grace and his grace is sufficient. We learn that God provides and he meets our needs in those times when we are suffering. We learn humility. God removes our pride. He removes the dross from our life. And we gain a greater faith. We come to see God work in our life in ways that we would not see him in other circumstances. Malcolm Muggeridge was an English journalist, lived in the 1900s, died in 1990, and he was an agnostic for most of his life. And then late in life, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. He actually wrote a book in 1975 that was called Jesus, The Man Who Lives. And he shared what God had done in his life. But looking back on his life and experiences, he said this, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have ever learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through afflictions and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, if it ever were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence, by means of some drug or other medical mumbo-jumbo as Aldous Huxley envisioned in Brave New World, the result would not be to make life better, but to make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. And this is what the cross signifies. And it is the cross more than anything else that has called me inexorably to Christ. There are things that we learn through trials that we would not learn in any other way. In fact, if you want a great assignment for this week, just think back in your own life. Take some time to think back on the difficult things that you have gone through in your life and, and ask or bring to mind or write down, what is it that God taught you through those circumstances? How did you see God work in your life in those trials? What was it that you learned? And be reminded again in a fresh way of God's mercy and his grace and his provision. Thirdly, we see here in this passage that genuine faith brings great joy. And we see that in verses 7 to 9. He said that these things one day will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There are three results that Peter mentions in these verses. He tells us, number one, that God is glorified when believers stand firm in trials. That our faith brings glory to God. When you think about those Old Testament saints like Joseph who was rejected by his brothers and then sold into slavery and then found himself in an Egyptian prison, he stood firm in his faith and God would use him to save a nation. Or you think about Job who had no idea of the conversation going on in heaven between God and Satan when Satan accused God and said that the only reason Job worships you is because you've blessed him, you've given him good things. Take away all those things you've given him and Job would curse you 
to your face. And God allowed Job to be stricken with afflictions. And in all his trials, Job held firm and worshipped God. And Job brought glory to God by his faith. Or you can think of Daniel and his friends who glorified God by refusing to bow down and worship any other God. Our faith, when we stand firm in trial, brings honor and glory to him. It tells the world that our God is worthy of our praise and our devotion, that our God is powerful and mighty, that our God will bring justice in that day. He also tells us that believers will be rewarded for their faith. And we see that in the words of Jesus Christ, too, who said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are you when people uh, insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus is saying, hang in there, trust me, trust me that your reward is going to be great in heaven. Because in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the book of James, James wrote, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And thirdly, genuine faith leads to an inexpressible and glorious joy. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. And when we focus on him, we experience this deep joy that cannot be put into words, but it is there. We feel it in our heart. And I love how Peter describes it here in this passage when Uh, here he is, he's an apostle. He is one who has seen the living Christ. He saw Jesus suffer and die, and he saw him rise again, alive from the grave. But here in his ministry, he is already speaking to Gentiles living in other parts of the world who never saw Jesus. They did not see him with their own eyes. They only heard about Jesus through the testimony of the apostles, through the word of God that was being written down and recorded for their benefit and for ours. And so in that sense, they are just like us as believers. And he is saying to them that even though you have not seen him, you love him. Can you say amen to that? I mean, yes, that's true. That's, that's where we are. We have not seen Jesus, but we've come to love him. And even though we do not see him now, we believe in him. And we are filled with that deep and glorious joy that comes from our relationship with God. It's something that can't be fully explained, but you know when you come to place your trust in Jesus and your sins are forgiven and he changes your life and you know the reality of that truth. One of my favorite missionary videos is a video called E-Tau. And we uh, have shown in our ABFs a number of years ago now, probably that it was shown, but it was put out by New Tribes Mission. And what it is, it's the story of a primitive tribe in Papua New Guinea where a missionary couple, Mark Zook and his wife, went there to live among these people who had never heard the gospel before. They helped them with their physical needs and medical needs. They learned their language and they began to translate the Bible into their language. Uh, 
They love them, they build relationships, they care for them. And over time, they taught them the scriptures, but they did it in a unique way. They started with the Old Testament and they taught them the story of creation, that there is a God who made the heavens and the earth. They talked about the fall and Adam's sin and rebellion against God. They talked about how sin entered into our world. They told the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and down through Moses, and they began to tell these significant stories from the Scripture. So that when the time came, when they talked about Jesus Christ, there was a context for that. And when these missionaries told them that Jesus was put to death for our sins, the people wept. And when they heard that Jesus rose again and that he is alive, and that they could know him too, the whole tribe responded in a pretty amazing way. I want to show you the video clip and let you see how they responded to the good news of the gospel. On that day, almost all the village expressed belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a sense of tremendous relief. The Mok are generally a restrained people, but as the gospel sunk in, and new believers sensed the liberation from sin, Spontaneous rejoicing broke out. Watch what happened. Village believers stating that he too believes that Christ has paid for his sins. Itao, which means it's true or it's good, it's very true. Village grandma rejoicing that he believes, so does she. Different ones giving testimony as to their belief in Christ as their sin bearer. Mark saying that if they really are believing, then God's word says that their sin is forgiven. Itao, it's good, it's true. Spontaneous rejoicing breaks out. This went on for two and a half hours. On that day, <laughs> isn't that cool? Mark and his wife labored there for seven years, seven years, laying a foundation, telling the story, sharing the gospel. And uh, what a picture 
to have him as a missionary picked up and carried like the winning coach of the Super Bowl team, you know, and, and dancing around and shouting, e tau, it is true, it's true. It's like when we say amen, amen, it is true, I agree. A deep and inexpressible joy filled their hearts. Do you know that joy? And do you know Jesus in that way too? That's the, that's the gospel. That when we fully understand it, and we understand that our sins are forgiven, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that we can be right with God, that's the kind of joy that Paul's talking about here, that, or Peter's talking about here, that fills our heart. Life is hard. There are going to be trials that will come to all of us. But it is possible to have joy in the midst of trials if we will remember what we have in Christ, our great hope, our lasting inheritance, and a divine protection. And if we will remember that there is a purpose for our trials and that God is with us in the midst of them. And if we will remember that those who trust in Him will experience great joy and great reward. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to see that overwhelming response in the hearts of those believers in that Moke tribe who came to know Christ that day. And their hearts were filled with worship and praise to you. They didn't know what else to do but to dance and sing and shout for joy. Father, may we not neglect that joy that came to our hearts that first day when we understood the gospel and you changed us. But may that joy capture our hearts and fill us with praise as we go through trials and difficulties in our life. May we glorify and honor you. May we remain faithful and walk with you all the days of our life in obedience. And may that joy just overflow in a way where we, like the Apostle Paul, want others to know you too. That they might come into a relationship with Jesus as their Savior and Lord. These things we ask in your name. Amen.